Welcome to the Shari Tzedek Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Here you'll find a live recording of just about every sermon, Devar Torah, teaching, or story from our Arab Shabbat and High Holy Day services. We know that you wish you could be with us more often, and we understand life getting in the way is not a bad thing. To live Jewishly is to understand that just as important as it is that Judaism happens in the synagogue, it's even more important to live Jewishly in your home and on your way. So here we are, in your home, on your way, maybe even on your morning run. If you ever have any questions or want to continue the discussion, let one of us know, and make sure you check out our live stream and YouTube channel for more ways that Shari Tzedek is available to you on demand. Keep an eye on your shofar and email so that when you're able, you can be with us as well. Looking forward to seeing you soon. Thank you, Rabbi Simon, and thank you for this great opportunity to once again be honored. I'm in so many ways speechless and in so many ways also grateful to all of you for being here to celebrate with me. It's great having Stephen and Kristen and all of our family, my grandchildren, and of course Donna with us tonight. <laughs> she threatened to watch on Zoom at home. <laughs> being able to celebrate with family is one of the greatest gifts that you can have. And thank you, Rabbi Simon, for these past three years inviting me to be so much a part of the congregation. That's not a given for all rabbi emeriti. Very often, the rabbi who takes over and becomes the new senior does not have the graciousness to offer that and make it possible. But you've done it in spades, and I can't thank you enough for the blessing that that represents. When Rabbi asked me if I would speak, I immediately remembered what I was watching online with Rabbi Weiss here. And he always, at least for these last year, was always standing here with Cantor Canizaro, and the two of them would harmonize. And I said, I'll speak, but don't expect me to harmonize with Cantor <laughs> Canizaro. Rabbi Weiss's voice is absolutely beautiful. My voice, they always turned my mic off whenever <laughs> the singing started. Wise people. I also told Rabbi that due to the fact we're celebrating my 50th anniversary of the rabbinate, that I deserved 50 minutes to speak. <laughs> And he immediately extended the online community to an hour and a half. I have 24 pages. So it's big type. Remember, I can't see. So here we go. This week's Torah portion from the book of Numbers goes as follows. God spoke to Moses saying, Send men to scout the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelite people. Send one man from each of their ancestral tribes, each one achievement, a chieftain among them. So Moses, by God's command, 
sent them out from the wilderness of Paran, all the men being leaders of the Israelites, when Moses sent them to scout the land of Canaan. And he said to them, go up there into the Negev, on into the hill country, and see what kind of country it is. Are the people who dwell in it strong or weak? Are the people who live there, is the country in which they dwell, good or bad? Are the towns they live in open or fortified? Is the soil rich or poor? Is it wooded or not? And take pains to bring back some of the fruit of the land. I can imagine the anxiety these Israelites must have felt as they reached the border of the promised land following their 40-year journey in the desert. It was a moment of truth. Should they enter or not? What danger lie ahead? What opportunities? How far could they gaze into the future to determine what it might hold? I share with you tonight that I harbored the same fears while assessing the future of my promised land. I was a naive 21-year-old in 1966, and I was trying to decide if I should apply to law school or rabbinical school. Arguing in a courtroom did not particularly appeal to me, but I also had serious God questions that cast a shadow over my, my rabbinical school option. Was I sufficiently observant enough? Did I believe fervently enough? And what about my penchant for eating shrimp gumbo and, and split pea soup with ham hocks? So many questions and few clear answers. I decided, obviously, to try the seminary, Hebrew Union College, and spy out the land. I figured that if I didn't like it, I had time to change course. And I didn't like it, at least at first. Going from mid-1960s Austin, Texas, to metropolitan Manhattan, felt like being dropped in a foreign country. I was a man of the West. I knew how to dehorn and castrate young bulls at roundup time. But I didn't know the first thing about what I had to do to get on and off a subway or how to find one. Rabbinical school itself was not much better. HUC, Hebrew Union College in New York, was so tr religiously traditional that I thought I had been inserted into an 18th century Polish yeshiva. Students and professors wore talesim and yarmulkes in services and chanted prayers I had never heard of, and they chanted them in Hebrew. Meanwhile, I had come from an almost Hebrewless classical reform congregation in Dallas, where traditional garb was about as welcome as steak in a vegetarian restaurant. I was also the only HUC student to ever have to be interviewed twice by the school's admissions psychiatrist. <laughs> I first thought the extra session was needed to see if I was delusional 
because I wanted to attend the New York campus. Normally, if you came from anywhere outside the New York, New England, New Jersey corridor, you were expected to attend the Cincinnati school. 50 years later, I think that additional vision had nothing to do with Cincinnati and was ordered because they thought I might be borderline nuts. <laughs> Needless to say, I never revealed that extra visit on my resume. <laughs> that crazy, I'm not. But things got better. I learned the Hebrew and the chanting. I embraced more traditional observances. My professor suggested new ways of thinking about God and prayer, and I made peace with New York. Well, sort of. When the senior rabbi of one of Manhattan's largest reformed synagogues invited me at ordination to become his assistant rabbi, I said, no thank you. I want to live where people eat grits and know how to say, y'all. Indeed, the world I entered when I was ordained in 1971 was a very different one from today. The microprocessor had just been invented, ushering in the digital age. We landed yet another astronaut on the moon and the television sitcom All in the Family featuring the not-so-politically-correct Archie Bunker reflected the social upheavals affecting society. These developments affected my outlook, but the events that most influenced my world in 1971 were the ones that occurred a few years before. From the past first, the passage of the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Bill in the mid-60s quieted some of the civil rights demonstrations that had preceded them. But the backlash energized the anti-black, anti-Semitic Ku Klux Klan. The Klan began bombing synagogues across the South, including mine in Jackson, Mississippi. This reality caused the Jewish, the reformed Jewish community to abandon social justice work and turn instead to fighting anti-Semitism. Second, the Six-Day War in 1967 gave the Jewish community something to cheer about. Tiny Israel was seen as the triumphant David to the Arab Goliath. And we American Jews became heroes in the eyes of our Gentile neighbors. Lessons on Israel suddenly flooded our religious curricula. Jewish summer camps became mini kibbutzim and American-Israeli fundraising flourished. This infusion of Israeli culture provided a rallying cry for the reform movement, which at the time was searching for a new identity. But then came the Yom Kippur War, dashing any hopes for a quick resolution to the conflict. And third, in 1971, the New York Times published the purloined Pentagon Papers, which revealed that the government had been lying to the American people about the extent of our involvement in Vietnam. Imagine that. 
The Vietnam War had already split the country for a number of years, leading to general upheaval. Anti-war fervor shook the foundations of our institutions, challenged our government leaders like never before, and spilled over into questions about government, institutions, and religious hierarchies. Suddenly, and you will remember this, nothing was sacred anymore. Not the government, not universities, not teachers, and certainly not rabbis. I was shocked in 1970 when members of my student congregation staged a walkout in the middle of my sermon condemning the Vietnam War. Yet despite these setbacks, I still hope to begin my rabbinate in a world in which racial strife would slowly ebb, the Arab-Israel conflict would yield to calmer minds, and the American thirst for unwinnable wars would finally be quenched. But that has not happened. And now, looking back 50 years later, I'm saddened to realize that despite all our technological progress, all of our Middle East diplomacy, and all of our racial sensitivity initiatives, little has changed. Worse still, the Jewish community has been drawn into the fray, where we were once united in our stance on all three of those issues. Today, the fabric of our synagogues is being torn apart by our differences over every one of them. This is not the picture of the promised land flowing with milk and honey that I anticipated entering and hoped to build upon. The good news is that I'm not defeated, and here's the reason. Remember the verse I read which began, and Moses sent out the spies to spy out the land of Canaan to see what the land they will dwell in is about, whether it is good or bad? Well, a later commentator called the Sefer Hazehut comment on, on that verse as follows. Even if the land should seem bad to you, it's good. Though it may be hidden, the sanctity of the land is always there. Hidden beneath its superficial disadvantages is all the good that is in it. And once you have entered the land, all this sanctity that was hereto concealed will be revealed before you. My optimism, which has grown over the years, despite my disappointment, stems from that commentator's reminder that you can miss the good in life if you fail to uncover the tiny degrees of progress you can achieve along the way. For example, a year after my ordination, HUC ordained the first female rabbi in the world. Since then, hundreds of women rabbis in all but the Orthodox movement have enriched Jewish life in a myriad of ways. Hebrew Union College also opened its doors to gay students, students not born to Jewish mothers, students who were converted to Judaism, and students representing almost every ethnicity and race. Only students with non-Jewish spouses or partners 
are still barred from ordination. But a change is coming. And do not underestimate the impact that the growth of the cantorate has had on Reformed Jewish worship. When I grew up in the 50s, the idea of a cantor was anathema to the classical reform philosophy. It smacked of orthodoxy. By the time I entered rabbinical school, reform cantors were just coming into their own. And when I arrived here in 1986, we sported a four-person lay choir that was hidden behind a curtain in the space that now houses the cantor's office. There was a screen with curtains. You never saw the choir. You just heard some voices coming from back there. Since then, we have had two cantors, and leading services without one present is unthinkable. Another positive is that Reformed Judaism has adapted and thrived in an increasingly challenging environment. Though the Jewish population numbers have dropped and congregation growth has somewhat stalled across the country, reform has managed to reinvent itself in line with cultural change. Our schizophrenic mission shift from social justice advocacy to prayer book gender neutral language revision to Israel engagement to the rediscovery of our orthodox roots to spirituality and then back to social justice has been a little crazy and mind-boggling, but it's been healthy. I have watched Reform's brilliant blueprint for balancing tradition with change, and I've watched it save us from the defections that other movements are now experiencing. That win should not be taken for granted. But for me, the greatest blessings over the past 50 years have been personal. They center on the invaluable lessons my three congregations have taught me. In my first two years in Memphis, my lifelong mentor, Rabbi Harry Danziger, not only rescued me from a difficult assistantship, but also explained that a rabbi's mere presence at critical times is more important than his or her words. And this advice to give congregants an opportunity to, and his advice to give congregations an opportunity to like you before you initiate change has saved me from entering new congregations like a bull in a china shop. See, I got back to the bulls, but in a more <laughs> appropriate way. In Jackson, Mississippi, the threat of Klan-directed violence against the Jewish community taught me the importance of working closely with the temple's lay leadership. Yes, I was the rabbi, and I felt obligated to uphold my rabbinic principles promoting civil rights. But I also concluded that I could not do so at the expense of my congregant's safety. This blessing in disguise led me to understand that while nobody gets everything they want, when rabbi, lay leaders, and congregants consciously strive to work together, 
everybody wins. And here in Tampa at Charitse, I learned the most important lesson of all. Recognize the gift you have been handed when a congregation gives you the freedom, the freedom to fail. To say I was unprepared to lead a large congregation is an understatement. My people's people skills were lacking. My organization skills were non-existent and still are. I was too severe in my critical decision-making, and I was still too impatient for change. But every temple president I served, that every temple president I served under graciously accepted my shortcomings and patiently helped me grow. It could have been different. Leaders with a more critical mindset might have sent me packing. But there's a reason that this congregation has had only four senior rabbis in 127 years. Shari Tzedek is a congregation that loves to love its rabbis. And I was so lucky to land here. You, my congregants, have blessed me. You, my congregants, have done more than show your love and appreciation which you've done in bucketfuls. You have blessed me with the staff and tools to become as successful as possible. You have welcomed my family with open arms and loving hearts from day one. You have been there for us when we have experienced hardship. You've celebrated my rabbinate more times than I deserve. You've made the love of my life, Donna, feel wanted and needed, which is a gift beyond words. And you have been there for our sons, Stephen and Michael and their families, when my rabbinic duties kept me from making, for, from making time for them. The Israelites who were apprehensive about entering the promised land almost missed the promise it held. Of the 10 spies that entered the land, only two returned with a positive report. But Moses was wise enough to trust the possible over the seemingly impossible. And maybe that's the secret behind my 50-year journey into the rabbit. As with Forrest Gump's box of chocolate, I never knew what I was going to get, never knew where I was going to land, and I still do. But with the help of God, a little luck, and a will, little willingness to tiptoe into what I have accepted is an imperfect world, I think I did okay. The rabbinate has indeed become my promised land. I definitely made the right choice, and Shari said it is the, is the milk and honey that have made it all worthwhile. And so I say now, on to another 25 years, at which time I'll be, be, I will be 101 years old. And on that night, speak from this pulpit 
and deliver a celebratory sermon that is commensurate in length with those 101 years. Amen.